Well, let's do it. We've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the broadcast. Yes, one of my favorite times of the week, Friday afternoons here on The Line of Fire. You've got questions, we've got answers. I feel like a kid in a candy shop because I love getting your calls, love answering your questions, love seeing the phone lines light up and see what you have on your mind today. Here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Now, Maybe you just recently started listening to me and you don't agree with anything. Who, who, is, who does this guy think he is? Well, that's why we have live talk radio. So you get to call in and give me a piece of your mind and I get to respond. Or maybe you think, man, I've got these questions. My wife and I keep talking about this or struggling or trying to figure this out, reading the word or dealing with this at work and how to handle this situation spiritually. Hey, phone lines are wide open. 866-34-TRUTH. Okay, first. Big news from California. Let me say it again. Big news from California. There is a bill that was poised to be passed by the assembly. It had been voted on positively by the Senate 25 to 11. It was going to go through the assembly and straight to Governor Jerry Brown to be signed. AB 2943 that would make it illegal for anyone of any age under any circumstance to get professional help for unwanted same-sex attraction. The LA Times reported today that Assemblyman Evan Lowe, gay himself, the one who put this bill forward, has now withdrawn it. It had to be voted on by today. He pulled it. Why, in his own words, he had spoken with different faith leaders and heard different things out and thought, okay, we need to recraft this. So this is big News. I want to read a quote from him in a moment, verbatim. It's big news because it shows you what happens when the church stands. It shows you what happens when Christian leaders speak out. It shows you what happens when people who have come out of homosexuality publicly give their testimonies, as uncomfortable as it may be for some of them. It shows what happens even in hyper-liberal California when Christians take a stand. This is big. This is positive. This is excellent. But, number one, big caution. Here's what Assemblyman Lowe says in his own words. He, he says, I believe we're on the side of the angels. In other words, I believe we're on the right side here. I believe we're on the side of the angels on this issue. Having said that, in order to get it right, why shouldn't we want to engage in meaningful, thoughtful, transformational relationships and conversations? So, here's what he's saying. The bill, it's a good bill. We're right in saying that, that gay is good. And and we're right in wanting to ban this, but obviously we need to approach this differently. So this is not going away. That's number one. Don't fall asleep on this. Number two, what about the kids? It's banned in California, and, and the church barely stood then. It's banned in 14 states. If you're a minor with unwanted same-sex attraction or gender identity confusion, you cannot get professional help to help you resolve those issues in a positive way. Or you can be affirmed in the feelings you have, 
but you cannot get professional help, even if your parents are standing with you. Even if you're 17 years old and were raped and molested as a child, and that contributed to your sexual confusion. Illegal. What about the children? And why did it take this before believers finally woke up and spoke up? So great news, big news, positive news, and excellent, excellent work by many Christian leaders mobilizing pastors speaking up, so many individuals getting involved. Great news, wonderful news. And kudos to to Assemblyman Lowe for doing what he did, to take the time to meet with so many leaders and to have the integrity to pull the bill. But friends, this is just the beginning. Time to wake up. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we'll start in Germantown, Maryland with Michael. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. You're I welcome. Two questions, if time permits. My first is about Moses writing the Pentateuch. And why does he write in third person? And my second question is on Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 as regards to the word Shiloh and the Mm -hmm. meaning of Shiloh and how come most modern translations don't translate it with Shiloh. Yep, got it. So the first thing in terms of Moses writing the Pentateuch, that is the traditional Jewish and Christian view. Through the rest of the Old Testament, these are referenced as the, the books of Moses or the law of Moses, and the New Testament refers to Moses' writing. So this has been the traditional understanding that was almost universally held until a few hundred years ago when some German scholars began to challenge that. There had been a few odd challenges to some verses here and there. But Moses would write in in the third person just the way someone trying to write in a dispassionate way would. In other words, if that's the narrative and you're instructed with writing this narrative of what happened in your life, then you're doing it third person. Interesting, in the book of Jeremiah, which we believe Jeremiah wrote, some of it's third person some of its first person. So it's just literary style, and it would be appropriate if Moses is writing it. And re- remember, the whole goal is, is not to be presenting this from a personal viewpoint, but to be writing as instructed by God. According to Orthodox Judaism, God dictated the words Moses wrote them. So obviously third person is easier then. But it's just a literary style when writing about yourself and not wanting to identify yourself as the one writing about yourself. As far as Genesis 49, 10 which is recognized as a messianic prophecy because it does indicate that the messianic rule will come from the tribe of Judah. It's, it's in Hebrew, Shiloh. does that mean until he comes to Shiloh where they first set up the tabernacle? No, unlikely. Uh, does it mean Shiloh, uh, short for that in Hebrew or put together as one word, uh, tribute to him? In other words, until he comes to whom tribute belongs. That's a possible interpretation. Is it just a name, Shiloh, Shiloh, which is perhaps related to a root Shalah, having to do with rest, the man of rest? We don't know. So sometimes when you're not sure about a word, you just put it, you transliterate it as a name. Not sure what it means, so maybe it's just a name. But in this case, there's been debate about the meaning of it for many, many centuries. And you'll find it in the oldest translations and interpretations. Is it a name? Is it the description of an individual? We don't know. It's debated. The big thing to me is that it is saying that the Messianic rule will come from Judah, that the obedience of the nations will be to him, 
and that it must happen within a certain period of time when certain authority is taken away from the Jewish people. That has long since been the case. Therefore, we can make a good argument for having messianic application to Jesus himself. Hey, Michael, thank you for two good questions that I could answer very quickly. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Boston, Massachusetts. Eric, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Uh, You're welcome. My question is... All right, thanks. Yeah, my question is in regards to the name for Jesus that's found in the Quran. And I read in your book, um, 60 Questions, um, uh, you, you mentioned that it's possible that it comes from a perhaps an insult, a Jewish insult referring to Jesus as Esau. And I was, you did give a reference for that, but I was curious if, if you could just give uh, specific um, quotations, maybe from like a ta- the Talmud, like the Tractate or something, just so I could look it up and document it. Uh, and then I-, I was just kind of curious what your take is on people who claim that it comes from Greek or Aramaic. Um, how would you interact with, with that in, in uh, your opinion? Yeah, so uh, the the first thing first thing is this. Uh, just so folks know what the question is about, in the Quran, Jesus is referred to as Isa, which doesn't make any sense. If you take Yeshua and put it into Arabic, you get Yeshua, because the, the sh in Arabic becomes a sa. So you get Yeshua. You, you wouldn't get Isa. So where does that come from? Well, we know that Muhammad learned about Jewish and Christian beliefs from different Jewish and Christian teachers. And sometimes it appears that he confused what was written in the Bible with what was found in outside Jewish traditions. So you find a lot of these outside Jewish traditions reflected in the Quran as if this is what the Bible actually said. And we know that sometimes in the Talmud, it's not so much as an insult, but another way of speaking about Jesus without speaking about him directly. So for example, there are, there are statements in the Talmud about Balaam, all right? And, and Balaam is suffering a certain fate in the world to come, or, he's, or he's, he's right now boiling an excrement in Gehenna, and that there are many who believe that when it says Balaam, it actually means Jesus. That's their way of referring to him as a false prophet without naming him. And this could have also been because of, of potential censorship, uh, of, of church reading it and seeing things, So in the same way, there are some who believe that when there's a reference to Esau, that in a negative way, that it's actually referring to Jesus and that Muhammad heard those things and got confused. This is one of the explanations to me, the best as to how this name got there. Hence, uh, hence Esau instead of, of uh, Yeshua as it should have been. Now, if it came through Aramaic, Aramaic is Yeshua. Syriac is closely related to that. That to me would not explain the form Esau in, in the Quran. As far as coming through the Greek, Jesus, you would still expect different verbal form. So to me, that, that doesn't line up. Again, there's some other explanations, but to me, the best one is this misunderstanding. What I'll do is uh, just grab maybe the best reference or two, just keep listening after the break, and I'll get you the best reference or two where scholars think that when the Talmud mentioned Esau, it actually meant Jesus instead. But what is interesting is that if a Muslim 
calls on the name of Jesus. He's not pronouncing it rightly because he knows it is Esau, and yet God knows who he's talking about and responds to that cry. And if a Muslim confesses Jesus as Lord, he may be mispronouncing the name, but we know the person he's talking to, and that's always the biggest issue. So, Eric, um, on the other side of the break, just keep listening, however you're listening, and uh, we'll we'll give you the best reference. The the ones that most scholars would agree on are likely a backhanded slap or just a reference to Jesus in the Talmud, but calling him Esau instead. All right, phone lines are jammed, but I want to get to every one of your calls on the other side of the break. And after that, right here on the line of fire. Don't go anywhere. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, I'm just just looking for the best example to give to Eric about Jesus being associated with Esau. There's a Zohar reference, some Jewish mysticism, where Christians are referred to as children of Esau. Uh, But just looking for some other references in terms of the best specific point a place to point him to. Okay, 866-34-TRUTH. And um, I will go back. Uh, normally we don't. All right, we don't have to. I was going to go back to a caller from New Zealand, even though he called just a few days back because it was New Zealand. But normally we don't want the same person back on within a few weeks just to be fair to others. Okay, I don't have to do that because he's gone. 866-34-TRUTH. And we go to Marlene in Indiana. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, how are you? Doing very well. I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you actually several questions, but I probably only have time for one. You have been talking about the churches and why they didn't do anything in California and why they weren't standing up. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know, A, have you heard about it? B, do you believe in it? And that is that a lot of the churches that turn to not evangelism, but just regular churches that turn to the 501c and, you know, made themselves of that, in turn, kind of signed up with the devil, with the occult, because um, they ended up going on two. I don't know if you've heard about the devil has one frequency, God has another. Yeah, they, yeah, Mar- Marlene, like, yeah, just to jump in. So 501c3, my own organization— uh, is is that is is registered as five hundred one c three? So we are reli- right. registered as a religious organization, not a political organization. But uh, I'm one hundred percent free with that to speak out on whatever issue I feel to speak out on. There's no hindrance. There's no obstacle to it. Those hiding behind that are doing so wrongly. Those who are saying, "Well, we we can't speak out on this issue because we're five hundred one c three. That's that's quite false. If we became primarily a political organization and what we got involved with is political advocacy. And that was the function of our work. Then I would not be able to do that uh, as 501 C three, but to be perfectly candid with you, Marlene, I find the problem to be either fear of man or lack of conviction or unwillingness to take controversial stands 
the best construction is, well, I don't want to distract from my ability to be a witness for the gospel, but what happens when our kids are being picked off? What happens when wrong things are being done? What happens when babies are being slaughtered in the womb? Well, if I speak out on abortion, I might offend people. Well, speak out. The truth is always going to offend. So 501c3 is currently constructed. No problem. for. Look, I've done it all these years with zero problem with the IRS whatsoever, speaking out on moral cultural issues. And uh, as we get close to the midterm elections, I will give spiritual and biblical principles that will help us in terms of thinking through how to vote. And even when I, as an individual, endorse Senator Ted Cruz during the Republican primaries, the one only time I've endorsed someone, and perhaps the last time, because it, it distracted from people being able to hear me as, a, as a, an impartial voice, but which is the biggest thing I've got to be given to. But I, as an individual, I could endorse Senator Cruz and pastors even under 501c3 could, if their churches are registered as such, can freely address certain political issues from the pulpit just within certain bounds. And now with President Trump taking on the Johnson Amendment, there's really nothing stopping one from doing it. But there's a distinction between being a ministry and people are giving to a charitable ministry and it's tax deductible versus giving without tax deduction to a political advocacy cause. That's the big difference. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to uh, Chris in Texas. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Hey. <laughs> hey how you doing? Nice, nice to meet you. Thanks. Um, uh, yes, sir, this is an odd question. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever uh, touched on this before or are familiar with it. Uh, uh, the Mandela effect, you familiar with that phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, how would you, how would you describe it? Um, well, just like, yeah, you know, a lot of it be just uh, written off as false memories, but, you know, some like most of them, I think. But, but then there's some that just swear you know, up and down, you know, the 1611 King James Version has been, like, supernaturally, you know, that's changed. Right, right. Yeah, if, if you could just explain, though, how how do you define the Mandela effect? Well, I mean, you know, there's theories about it, and I think the most popular one is uh, CERN, which I believe is, like, modern-day, uh, you know, Tower of Babel. You know, right, right, right. Okay, to... yeah, let, let me let me try this once more. How do you define <laughs> the words the Mandela effect? Okay, uh, when you're something that uh, um, you know different than others. Okay, um, you know whether it's you know. All right, we'll tell you what. Let's let's you know. let's put that aside then, because I didn't get that. And the what's the King James connection then? Well, okay. Um, there's like modern words, you know, that that are in there that just seem like they don't belong. You know, like uh, uh, the main ones are like couch, you know, and, and uh, instead of wine skins, it's bottles, you know, and it's like now it's like kind of misleading. Uh, but the word stuff and couch and matrix and unicorn, you know, there's all kinds of words, you know, that. Uh, Got it. So, so what do you do, what do you do? So here's here's the question, Chris. Yes, what sir. do you do about uh, if you get the original, get an original 1611 King James? OK. Uh, you're not going to be able to understand a lot of it because so much of the vocabulary has changed and the words are old. We don't spell it the same way. We don't use those words, right? And yeah. that's not an accurate reflection 
on the Bible. In, in other words, as the Bible was being translated, as the Bible was being written, it was written in the language of the people. It wasn't written in old Hebrew or, or old Greek. It was written in the language of the people. It reflected the prayers and the hearts and the dealings of, of the people. And, you know, for example, there's a Hebrew word, eravon, which in Greek is arabon, which is a deposit. And in the Greek literature of the day, you just have business transactions. All right, what's your arabon? What's your deposit? You know, what's your down payment? So it was, it was written in the language of the people, and that's the goal of a translator. If you'll read the preface to the King James Version, you'll see that that was their goal, to, to write in the language of the people. And as you read it, you can be 100% sure that if they were alive today, they'd be working on a new edition. The last thing they'd be doing is using the 1611, because these translators were, were in fact, I have a video on it. If you'll go to, if you'll go to my website, the Digital Library, Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown, and uh-huh. just type in uh, preface, okay? Uh, preface, I believe uh-huh. you'll find it. I actually go through the preface to the, to the King James by the King James translators themselves and discuss what they had to say. Otherwise, just check for KJV and you'll find it. Now, now look, Chris, I'm with you if, if the translators used words like... Uh, automobile or rocket ship or things that didn't exist in that day. But there, there are bottles. There are bottles from the ancient world. I mean, there were bottles back in that time, and there were things you'd call a couch. You know, that was, that's what you call as a couch. So it, it depends on how, if it brings in words, you know, computer, and, and Moses typed this in, downloaded this on the computer. Well, then obviously I totally agree with you, sir, 100%. But on the flip side, yeah, there's uh, King James vocabulary. A lot of it's changed dramatically. And words had one meaning then, a different meaning today. And the last thing they would want is for that to be the case. Hey, Chris, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Sorry we got do- bogged out on the Mandela effect issue there. And after you watch that video on the preface to the King James, just read it for yourself. Get online, you'll find it anywhere. Preface to the original King James. I think you'll find it to be a very interesting read. All right, we are going to go right back to the phones on the other side of the break. 866-348-7884. Before we do that, let me mention what to, to me has been a very, very exciting process. You know, I've written probably a hundred plus articles about candidate Trump in the primaries, then Republican candidate Trump against Hillary Clinton, and then President Trump to James Robinson today, who was one of the leaders who was with President Trump Monday night. And some of the leaders who were there have come away with tremendous reports. At the same time, I have other friends that say, how can you, Christian friends, how can you support a man like Donald Trump and he does so much harm and so on and so divisive and vulgar? And I was like, are you kidding me? The good he's done massively outweighs that. So how do we relate to this as evangelical believers? How should we show loyalty to the president and yet, show greater loyalty to Jesus? How, how should we stand for righteousness issues without selling our soul in the process? How do we work this through? So I was praying a couple of weeks ago, I got really burdened by the Lord to get a book out. I'll have lasting value in the years to come, God willing, but to get it out before the midterms. And, and I, I, so I put together brand new material, a full opening chapter that asked the question, evangelicals and Donald Trump, is this a match made in heaven? or is it a marriage with hell? And then the end of the book, 
I, I give you some prophetic insights, I believe, or, or spiritual insights into how to move forward. How should we think moving forward? And what should we do even with 2018, 2020 elections? And then within the book, I took every relevant article, some like 90 articles dealing with Trump and put them in there. And you can read just as I had concerns and a change of heart, hoped I'd eat my words. And do I get to eat my words now? And was I right? And the same things you've been thinking all in my book, 350 pages. It's going to come out October 23rd. We have an exclusive print. We're, we're printing 500 copies, just only us, 500 hardcover copies. We're going to number them. I'm going to sign them to you individually, put a scripture. And so to pre-order, this is only through us. You can get the hardcover numbered signed. Go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Order as many as you want. Just tell us who you want us to sign them to. It's a way you can stand with us as we're a blessing to you as well. Askdrbrown.org. You'll see it in the homepage. All right. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us today on The Line of Fire. You know, I, I just got a thought to do something. And I, I, God willing, I'm going to do it tonight. I'm just trying to figure out how to set things up, moved into a new place, and to figure out the best way to do this. But uh, God willing, Tonight, I am going to do a Facebook Live chat, oh, maybe around 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Do a live Facebook chat on the Ask Dr. Brown Facebook page where I'll, I'll talk about my new book, Donald Trump is Not My Savior, an evangelical leader speaks his mind about the man he supports as president, responding to questions that, why would you write this? Well, which side are you on? How could you stand for the president? How could you criticize the president? I I think we'll have some fun talking about this. So just want to give you a heads up. And uh, God willing, that's going to happen tonight around 9 p.m. Eastern time. All right, you've got questions. We've got answers. 866-348-7884. Any question? of any kind that you have in any area of expertise I have, phone lines are open. Earlier you call, the better chance we have of getting to your calls. With that, we go to CJ in Ohio. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hello? Hello. Oh, hi, Dr. Brown. I um, wanted to ask a question about... um how scripture teaches the uh, distinction between uh, having the Holy Spirit and uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, and I guess how believers are to, um, uh, how that is, is, is to impact, I guess, the life of, of the believer today. Yeah. So it's, it's an important question. We, we do know whatever relationship believers had with the Holy Spirit before Pentecost, Something changed after that. So whatever relationship Old Testament believers had or even the disciples had, it tells us in John the seventh chapter when Jesus spoke about wells of living water springing up from our innermost being, that he was speaking of the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given. And then, of course, in Luke 24, 49, he tells the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they're endued with power 
from on high. And then Acts 1.8, Jesus telling them that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So something distinct and definite happened at that point. Those who are of Pentecostal persuasion believe that the moment we are born again, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ, into Messiah's body, but that there is a separate endowment of power subsequently called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And they would say that's what happened in Acts 2 and Acts 8 and Acts 10 and Acts 19. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that every believer should pursue that so that we are endued with that supernatural power to enable us to be more effective witnesses for the Lord. It certainly includes boldness, but beyond that, it's, it's speaking of a supernatural endowment for signs and wonders and miracles, healing the, the anointing of the Spirit, working miraculously as testimony that Jesus has risen from the dead. There are others who believe that God still heals today and works miracles and that he does those things through us, but they would say the moment you're saved, you receive the Spirit. And it's not like you get more of the Spirit later. You receive the Spirit. It's just a matter of coming into the full awareness of the Spirit's work in our lives. What I would say practically, sir, is rather than divide over this, let's agree that God has wonderful things he wants to do in us, through us, by his Spirit. And we should cry out, God, fill me to the full, use me to the max. We know in Acts 2, 4, they were filled with the Spirit, right? Acts 2, 1 through 4, they're filled with the Spirit and they speak in new tongues. And then in Acts 4, 31, after they prayed, they were filled with the Spirit. The place was shaken and they were filled with the Spirit. So that could suggest we're filled with the Spirit and we're filled again with the Spirit. We're filled again. So rather than debate, is there a separate baptism of the Spirit, which, which I have historically believed there is, I would say, let's just go after God and say, Father, everything you have for me, the fullness of your spirit in my life so I can best glorify Jesus and be a witness to a hurting and dying world. Lord, I want everything you have and believe for that, whether it's something that comes subsequently or the realization of something that's already been given. As long as we get that same end result, that would be my most practical answer, sir. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I was uh, just kind of wondering, we were uh, studying uh, John uh, 1 uh, verse 32 and, Kind of looked at how uh, John the Baptist had mentioned that he had saw the Spirit uh, come down from heaven uh, and and uh, as a dove and remain on him, uh, referring to Jesus. Yeah. And so we're just trying to understand if if that um, if there is a distinction between the uh, you know with the, having the Holy Spirit and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, does it, once someone is uh, or experiences the baptism of the Holy Spirit, does it remain uh, in the way that it, that that um, that it did on Jesus, and or or, or is it uh, kind of a or, or like a, a temporary empowerment? Um, I mean, I, I understand the way I would understand it. The disciples were temporarily empowered. Uh, Matthew ten and Luke nine and ten and Mark six. They were temporarily empowered to go out on a mission, but they received the permanent endowment when they were subsequently baptized in the Spirit. And you could argue, depending on the grammar of the Greek in Acts nineteen, when Paul asked the believers he meets in Ephesus, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Why would he ask that if everyone automatically received the Spirit? Wouldn't he be speaking of something subsequent to salvation? And others say, well, they didn't have the full understanding of salvation, but Paul didn't know that at that point when he asked them. 
and Luke 4, Jesus talking about the spirit being upon him. CJ, there should be evidence that the spirit's upon us. There should be evidence that we have been filled with the spirit. And as I understand it, it is a permanent lifelong endowment from God. But like anything else, we must cultivate our relationship with God and our intimacy with God and walk in faith to see the full realization of the things that God has given us. So that's my big question. Do I have clear evidence of the anointing of the Holy Spirit in my life for the glory of God, for the good of the church, for the good of a dying world? And if we focus on that, and you're asking great questions, good questions, I believe we'll see God's hand move mightily. What's interesting is if you go through church history and you read about supernatural breakthroughs that say D.L. Moody had, doesn't reference tongues, but he, he received power from on high. There, there are others that knew there had to be more, like John Lake, and, and he broke through. And with him, it was baptism of the Spirit with tongues. The key thing is sometimes you go through a crisis and you know there must be more, and you have an experience of a fresh empowering of the Spirit, whether it's something coming on us from outside or the welling up of something inside. Either way, it's of critical importance if we're going to be effectively used by God. Thank you, sir. 866-34-TRUTH. Okay, we do reconnect with George in New Zealand. Welcome, sir, to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, nice to be back on the show. <laughs> uh, could you please explain to me how um, how women uh, need to have their hair, uh, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11? Yeah, uh, actually, hey, Matt, remind me, I've, I've got to just put that out on video because uh, we, get, we get asked that question so, so many times. Uh, let me just give you the really short answer, okay? I do believe that a woman's hair is given to her as a covering and that it is for her glory, that there's obviously something about women having a full head of hair versus men. It's perfectly common for men to be bald. It's perfectly common for men to shave their heads it's much more shameful and traumatic for a woman to be bald. So hair has been given to her with a special meaning in a woman's life, even more than in a man's life. And I believe that Paul is emphasizing there part of it, the proper gender distinctions. So every woman has to work this out between her and God. But uh, I'm personally uncomfortable when I see a Christian woman with her hair so short that you really struggle to see, okay, are you male or female? I don't, I don't see that as in harmony with hair being given as a woman's glory. Again, I'm, I may have really offended some people in saying that. I'm just speaking honestly and candidly. It's interesting watching Vicki Beeching. Someone just sent me a recent video of hers. And if you look at her when she was a Christian worship leader with longer hair and obviously very, very female and feminine, and now that she's come out as a lesbian, uh, it's interesting. Just, just look at the way she looks now. Just make of it what you will, Okay. Make of it what you will. Those watching, we've got a clip. And Matt, if you just grab, just search for her name and look for images, you'll see just pictures of her from the past where her hair was just a, a, a very common female length and looked much more feminine and womanly. It's, it's quite interesting to see the change there. As far as head coverings and all that, that's a, a separate subject that we've had uh, many a time, but I, one of these days I just got to put out a quick video on First Corinthians 11. But as far as women's hair, that's that's my view. It is something gifted from the Lord that has special value and importance in women's life. I understand 
uh, I understand in uh, different cultures, you may have cultures in Africa where you know women's hair is is very very short, and a man's hair may be different. I'm not making a larger judgment, just general observation. Hey, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Richard in Centralia, Washington. Perhaps the first time I've spoken to someone in Centralia, Washington. Welcome to the broadcast. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Brown. In fact, I just discovered who you were about a week ago. So I'm just a brand new listener and I'm really enjoying a lot of the work that you've I've seen already. So thank you well, so thanks. much. Well, you called, just known me for a week, and you called in. We've had folks listening 10 years haven't called yet. So good start. Thank you. <laughs> My question is uh, regarding the language of the Tower of Babel. And it, it, was that the same language that Adam and Eve spoke in the Garden of Eden with God? And the second part of that, is it related to... Zephaniah three nine, in God restoring that same language later through the gift of tongues. Yeah. Okay. So first thing is, I, I don't believe it relates to tongues in any way, and I say that as a tongue speaker since uh, January twenty fourth of nineteen seventy two when I first spoke in tongues. Uh, and Zephaniah the third chapter, there's the there's a question in terms of exactly what's meant by a, a pure tongue. All right, safabura uh, in Hebrew. Uh, does that mean a pure dialect of the language or pristine form of language that didn't exist or something having to do with spiritual purity? There's debate on it. But the larger question, what was the language Genesis 11 before God confounded the tongues? And was that the language of Genesis, say, in the second chapter where Adam uses Hebrew? We'll come back to that. Stay right there. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends, on The Line of Fire. So back to Richard in Centralia, Washington. All right, so we don't know for sure what the language was that was spoken before Tower of Babel. If we're assuming a Semitic language, scholars reconstruct something called Proto-Semitic, which is the source for all of the different Semitic languages, be they Babylonian Assyrian, be they Ugaritic, be they Eblaite, be they Aramaic and Syriac, be they Phoenician Punic, be they Arabic, be they Hebrew. All right, so that would be the speculation. It would have been Proto-Semitic, and then the scattering happened. But it theoretically could have been something else that doesn't exist. In other words, Semitic language could be one of the languages after the, the tongues were confused. So here's the other thing. We know that in Genesis 2, uh, Adam uses Hebrew. And he's called Adam because he comes from the Adama, the earth. And he calls his wife Chava, Eve, because she'll be the mother of all living. And she's called Isha, woman, because she's taken out of the Ish, man. So some believe that that was the first language, that Adam and Eve spoke Hebrew, that that was the original language, and that even though Hebrew historically developed as a Canaanite dialect, and Hebrew as we know it in the Bible 
is definitely a later language, not an earlier language. In other words, not as ancient as, say, Babylonian, not as ancient as Egyptian hieroglyphics. Hebrew, as we have it preserved in the Bible. Some would say, no, Hebrew is the original language and everything changed from there. It's, it's possible. But it's also possible that because the Bible was, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, that these ancient words and accounts were made to fit with Hebrew. For example, when I did my video, Can You Be Gay and Christian? I explained that, that the woman is called woman because she's taken out of the man. I know that the words woman and man are not related like that, but I didn't want to try to explain in a short video. Now I'm explaining what the Hebrew actually says and just giving you an analogy in, in English. It'd be like saying he's called Mike because he always speaks with a mic, you know, trying to, or he's called Frank because he's always Frank, even though that's not the original derivation. So it's, it's a subject of debate, sir, but for sure, we cannot say with any certainty what the language was in Genesis 11 before uh, things were changed. Tongues, if, if it is an identifiable language, it would be what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 13 when he speaks of the tongues of angels. Uh, those that want to be dogmatic about it, from, from my knowledge, from my understanding, uh, with a PhD in Near Eastern languages and literature, so someone who's looked at this, I would caution against someone being dogmatic about this. Just my own opinion there. All right. Thank you, sir, for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Paula in Greensboro, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, loud and clear, Paula. Okay. Did Pharaoh die when he crossed the Red Sea? Yeah. So if, if you... Right, right. So, so let's just let's just take a look, okay? Uh, if you take a look in Exodus chapter fifteen, uh, Exodus fifteen, which is the song of Moses, uh, notice notice what it says at the outset. So then, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song, and they're rejoicing in the Lord. And and what does it say? It says, uh, verse three: The Lord is a warrior; uh, the Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. And if you look back at the end of chapter 14, all right, uh, it says, uh, verse 28, the waters came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. None of them survived. So Paula, if we're understanding that Pharaoh led his armies to pursue Israel as the 14th chapter would suggest, then he would have died in, in, in when the sea came back and drowned all the Egyptians. He would have died if the text refers to him as leading the army, but just in terms of he was giving headship to it and he wasn't physically there, he wouldn't have died. But he was, if he was there, which is what the text seems to say, yeah, he would have died for sure. Thank you. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Florida. Sam, welcome to the line of fire. Hi. Brown, I have I have a couple questions for you actually. Um, first Let's start one with the first. Is, yes, the first one is concerning the apocrypha. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, I know that the, the apocrypha is not part of the canon of scripture that we have right now, at least the Protestant canon. Mm -hmm. So, um, can you please explain how um, we have a, a quote from the Book of Enoch that's in the Book of Jude? 
where Jude talks about the tens of thousands of saints coming down with the Lord. And yeah, sure. I, I, sure thing. So, so when we speak of the Apocrypha, for those that are not familiar, if you have a Catholic Bible, you have those books in the Catholic Bible. So First Maccabees or Wisdom of Solomon or Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus or Prayer of Manasseh or things like that or Tobit. These were, these were books that were written in between the Old and New Testament. They were included in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. And they were widely used in the early church. But nowhere, nowhere ever does the New Testament quote them as Scripture. In other words, saying, as it is written, or as the Scripture says. And that's how it consistently will quote the Old Testament or reference it as Scripture. There are other words and verses and sayings that are quoted. In Acts 17, Paul quotes a Greek poet, in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, Titus, Paul quotes another Greek poet who, who is criticizing the Cretans. Uh, so you, you do have other quotes. The Old Testament will reference, say, the book of Yashar and things like that, uh, but we don't have those. So in the same way, Enoch which is not Apocrypha, but what's called Pseudepigrapha, so a falsely ascribed work, so a work ascribed that it all went back to Enoch, whereas from everything we know, that's not the case, but it appears parts did go back, were authentic. So uh, that can be quoted. It was widely used in early Jewish and Christian circles, but just not recognized as part of the canon of Scripture. It's preserved in the, in the Ethiopic canon, so the Ethiopian Orthodox Church preserves it as Scripture, but otherwise it's not preserved. So it's not quoted as scripture, sir. That's the big thing. It doesn't say as the scripture says. If it said that, then we'd assume that Enoch was part of the canon. But there are other, other quotes in the New Testament from pagan poets, etc. So certainly a book that was highly revered and used could be quoted, but not as scripture. But it was, it was believed, obviously, as Jude is quoting it, he believed this was a genuine word that went back to Enoch, and that's why he quotes it. Make sense? Yes, it does make sense. So, um, does does that mean that we can read the, read these books and learn something from it? Oh yeah, absolutely, sir. Uh, no question. In fact, if you went back to the time of the Reformation, when many many of people were coming out of Catholicism. They, they, in the Bible, you had Old Testament, Apocrypha, New Testament. That, that's how Bibles were bound uh, many times in those days. And it was understood that you should, you should read the Apocrypha and learn from it, but don't base doctrine on it and don't take it with full scriptural authority. The way I like to put it is it's, it's in between a really good book and the Bible. In other words, it is not the inspired word of God, thus saith the Lord. But it's not just another really good book. So by all means, be familiar with what's in the Apocrypha. But if you find something that seems to conflict doctrinally, like praying for the dead or something like that, conflict doctrinally with Scripture, then you derive, you derive your doctrine from Scripture. When it comes to the book of Enoch, even more so, it's, it's more of a mix. But you'll learn about a lot of the traditions that early Christians uh, believed or at least were familiar with. So it's de definitely worth reading, learning from, but not getting caught up on or over-focused on. If God wanted us to have that, he would have included it as part of Scripture. Hey, friends, 
Uh, as always, we'll do our best to get to as many of your calls in the days ahead. We try to open up the phones on other days when maybe we we, uh, we finish talking about news or whatever we're talking about. Say, hey, let's open up the phone. So I uh, wish we could get to everyone every week, but unable to in the hour that we have. But a reminder, again, for those that have just tuned in the last few minutes or the last half hour, we've got a brand new book coming out October 23rd. Here's how you can get a hardcover. The hardcover will only be available through us. 